Hello, and welcome to this episode of Surety Today. Surety Today is a live monthly call-in podcast presented by the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright, Constable, and Skeen, located in the Mid-Atlantic region. Surety Today is offered to surety claims professionals and is designed to keep you informed about important issues in the industry. Here is your host, Michael Stover. Okay, well, welcome everyone to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety and Fidelity Law Group here at Wright Council of Skiing in Baltimore, Maryland. And today I'm joined by my partner, Thomas Moran, from our Richmond, Virginia office. As always, we uh, like to open up our episodes with a big thank you to everyone for your support of Surety Today. And we ask that you pass along our contact information to any colleagues who you think may be interested in calling in or checking out one of our podcasts. We also ask that you like and or share our Surety Today posts on social media platforms. You know, when you when you like or share a post, it lets all the other Surety folks that you're connected with see the post so they can join in. Remember, um, you can listen to any one uh, or all of our prior 68 episodes of Surety Today anytime, anywhere from any one of our multiple platforms, uh, the Surety Today page on our website at WCSLaw.com, as a podcast on uh, Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podbean. Just search for Surety Today. And we have a micro site that's suretytoday.net as well. As always, we've muted the line during the presentation to avoid any background noise, and we'll unmute the line at the end for any questions. So our episode today is about uh, the surety and attorney's fees. So attorney's fees, of course, are you know near and dear to every attorney's heart, but they can also be a significant aspect of claims. So today we will explore the topic of attorney's fees, when might they be recoverable, what are the reasonable fees, and, and some other issues. But first, I wanted to start with a discussion of the American rule regarding attorney's fees. And, and that's sort of the, you know, the, the baseline of, of attorney's fees in the United States. Under the American rule, attorney's fees incurred by the prevailing party in litigation are not recoverable as an item of damages in the absence of a contractual or statutory provision to the contrary. The American rule means that each party, win or lose, pays for its own attorney's fees. It's called the American rule because the rule in the United States differs from the rules regarding attorney's fees in other countries. For example, in England, at common law, the prevailing party was entitled to recover uh, their attorney's fees. The common law approach to fee shifting, of course, made uh, litigation a risky business, even under the best circumstances. But those pesky American rebels, man, we, we adopted a distinctly different approach upon obtaining independence. Indeed, the purpose of the American rule was in part to ameliorate the harshness of the common law approach. It's also been said that the, the purpose of the American rule is to avoid stifling legitimate litigation by the threat of the specter of burdensome expenses being imposed on an unsuccessful party. The Supreme Court addressing the purpose of the American rule observed that one should not be discouraged from prosecuting or defending against the suit because of the uncertainty of litigation and that the poor might be unjustly discouraged from defending their rights for fear of paying their opponent's fees. Uh, in a case from the Iowa Supreme Court, that court observed, the question of who pays attorney's fees is a big deal. This is so for a number of reasons. First, potential litigants with few resources are at a distinct disadvantage in legal disputes where attracting skilled lawyers, if not a prerequisite for success, greatly increases the odds of a uh, positive outcome. Second, 
our legal system has become more complicated and thus more expensive. Under, under the circumstances, an underdog risks being crushed by the resource imbalance, notwithstanding the underlying merits of the case. So the American rule is, is fairly straightforward and the foundations for it are fairly straightforward and it's well entrenched in, uh, in American jurisprudence. For the most part, it's, it's judge-made rule, but uh, some, some courts uh, or some jurisdictions have uh, codified the rule as well. So well, let's look at exceptions because, you know, with every rule, there are exceptions. So the exceptions to the American rule are uh, first that the parties can contractually bind themselves to pay attorney's fees as an item of damage or, uh, or to the prevailing party. Second, uh, a statute can specifically allow the recovery of attorney's fees under certain circumstances. Or third, the third exception, the wrongful conduct of a defendant can force a plaintiff into litigation with a third party. And under those circumstances, that's an exception to the American rule. So let's look at some of these exceptions. Uh, first, the contract exception. Um, of course, in, in the construction industry, recovery of attorney's fees is a common provision in construction contracts purchase orders, credit applications, and the like. Some bond forms, especially the general contractor manuscript bond forms, uh, provide for the recovery of attorney's fees. Indeed, even the AIA A312 bond forms uh, allow for recovery of attorney's fees in certain circumstances. Uh, as we all know, the, the general indemnity agreements typically require the payment of attorney's fees to the surety. Uh, that is certainly true with respect to contract surety bond cases, but may also may not always be true rather uh, in the commercial bond context. In, in commercial bonds, those squirrely little applications and the sort of afterthought indemnity provision is tagged in there, uh, may not fully or properly provide for the recovery of attorney's fees. So the old ad adage uh, RTFB must be observed. Uh, the, the, GAI the GAI must indemnify against any liability and not just loss. And it must specifically mention recovery of attorney's fees associated with not just issuing the bonds, but as well as seeking to enforce the GAI. Uh, so the next exception is the statutory exception. While the American rule has deep roots in our law, over time, legislatures began to enact statutes altering the rule in some situations to allow an award of attorney's fees to a prevailing party. Some of these uh, fee-shifting statutes are so-called leveling the playing field regimes, while others apply in commercial settings where the power imbalance between the parties may be less pronounced or non-existent. Some examples include consumer protection statutes, bad faith statutes, unfair claims handling practices, uh, false claims act litigation, and wage and hour violations, and so forth. Uh, in some statutes, it, it may not be clear if the legislature intended to countermand the American rule. In those instances, the Supreme Court has provided guidance holding that Congress must provide a sufficiently specific an explicit indication of its intent to overcome the American rule's presumption against fee shifting. The court noted that uh, the American rule presumption against fee shifting applies to all statutes. There are no magic words needed to override the American rule, but the requirement that legislative intent be specific and explicit is a high bar. The third exception uh, to the American rule applies where a breach of contract has forced the plaintiff to maintain or defend a suit with a third person. This exception uh, can have application in the surety industry. For example, there, there can be a situation where because of a principal's wrongful conduct, such as delaying a project, uh, that could lead to claims against the obligee by a third party, such as an owner or 
other trade contractors uh, who are impacted by the alleged delays. You can also see the situation uh, in a mechanics lien case as well, where the unpaid sub asserts a mechanics lien against the obligee, the owner of the property, and the obligee asserts a claim against the surety. Uh, thus, under the third-party litigation exception to the American rule, even if there was no provision in the bond or statute or the underlying contract, the obligee in such circumstances may be entitled to recover attorney's fees in the dispute if they were forced into that third-party litigation. So if attorney's fees are on the table, so to speak, as an item of damages, whether against the surety or against the party to the surety uh, that the surety is pursuing, the question becomes, what is required to prove the fees? In general, uh, recovery of attorney's fees includes proving reasonableness. Even if the attorney fee provision is in terms of a specific rate or a percentage, uh, the reasonableness requirement may still be required. The determination of the reasonableness of an award is within the sound discretion of the trial court, and an award of attorney's fees will only be modified upon proof of an abuse of discretion. When awarding attorney's fees, most federal courts use the so-called lodestar method. The lodestar is calculated by multiplying the number of hours reasonably expended by appropriate hourly rate in the community for such work. And considering the, the reasonableness of attorney's fees, most courts have adopted the so-called Johnson factors, those factors were first announced by the Fifth Circuit in the case of Johnson versus Georgia Highway Express, um, and, and are as follows. One, the time and labor required. Two, the novelty and difficulty of the questions. Three, the skill requisite to properly perform the legal service. Four, the preclusion of other employment by the attorney due to acceptance of the case. Five, the customary fees. Six, whether the fee is fixed or contingent. Seven, time limitations imposed by the client or the circumstances. Eight, the amount involved and the results obtained. Nine, the experience, reputation, and ability of the attorneys. Ten, the undesirability of the case. Eleven, the nature and length of the professional relationship with the client. And twelve, awards in similar cases. Not all the factors must be considered, and in some cases, certain factors aren't even applicable. Uh, but the court is required to look at those factors in order to assess reasonableness. Now, parties seeking uh, a fee award must produce satisfactory specific evidence of the prevailing market rates in the relevant community for the type of work for which he seeks an award. Generally, the party seeking uh, fees has the burden of proving the hours to the court by submitting contemporaneous time records that reveal all hours for which compensation is requested and how those hours were allotted to specific tasks. In documenting the hours expended, attorneys uh, are encouraged to exercise billing judgment by excluding time that is unproductive, excessive, duplicative, or inadequately documented when seeking fee awards. I have no idea what they're talking about there. I mean, who would do that? Of course, courts uh, may eliminate hours that they deem excessive, duplicative, uh, or too vague to permit uh, meaningful review. Some courts take the position that it's the province of the court to determine the reasonableness of attorney's fees. Uh, that will be awarded in those circumstances, all that may, require, may be required is submission of sufficiently detailed invoices. One court observed that the court is itself an expert on the question of reasonableness and may consider its own knowledge and experience concerning reasonable and proper fees and may form an independent judgment either with or without the aid of witnesses as to value. Other courts require affidavits from the attorney seeking the fees in some cases, an expert witness may be required to opine as to the reasonableness 
of the rate and fees incurred. Uh, obviously, best practice is to, you know, overwhelm the court with as much evidence, affidavits as you can, and uh, not run the risk that you're going to rely on the court um, to determine the reasonableness of the fees without uh, submitting sufficient uh, proof along with it. Now, in the District of Maryland uh, and, and in, um, in D.C., the federal courts have established guidelines for determining what a reasonable hourly rate is, and, and they've attached these as appendix to the local rules. And the guidelines basically are, are based on the, the, uh, the hours, the number of years, rather, that you are at the bar and then, uh, and then a range of reasonable rates. So you, you, you've been there 10 to 15 years, a reasonable rate is three to $400 an hour, something like that. So uh, the courts will generally look to those, um, to those guidelines to determine reasonable fees. Of course, the rest of it has to be analyzed in terms of what you were doing and how long it took. All right, so let's look at um, attorney fee recoveries under the Miller Act. Miller Act is silent regarding the recoverability of attorney's fees. The act merely provides that claimants may bring a civil action on the payment bond for the amount unpaid and may prosecute the action for the amount due. The starting point for analyzing the question of whether attorney's fees may be recovered in a Miller Act payment bond claim begins with the Supreme Court case of F.D. Rich uh, versus U.S. XREL Industrial Lumber. Uh, in F.D. Rich, a, a second tier subcontractor sued the general contractor and its surety on the Miller Act payment bond claim. The Supreme Court rejected the sub-subcontractor's claim for attorney's fees against the general contractor and the surety. The Supreme Court in F.D. Rich clearly announced that there is no federal statute concerning attorney fee recovery in Miller Act payment bond claims. The court further ex explained that the scope of the remedy under the Miller Act, as well as the substance of the rights created, is a matter of federal and not state law. Uh, and, and in the court, the, the court said, look, if Congress wants to change this rule, then fine, but so far, there's been no change, and so the F.D. Rich case makes clear that Miller Act does not allow recovery of attorney's fees. However, despite this apparent clarity, some federal courts have been willing to award attorney's fees if the bond claimant has a contract uh, clause or provision allowing recovery of attorney's fees. The decision in United States X-Rail Maddox Supply Company versus St. Paul Fire and Marine out of the Fourth Circuit is typical of these attorney fee cases. Uh, in that case, a supplier of a subcontractor sued the general contractor and its surety under the Miller Act. The supplier and subcontractor uh, had conducted business under the terms of a credit application, and that application provided for the recovery of attorney's fees. The trial court awarded the fees, and the Fourth Circuit affirmed. The Fourth Circuit gave little analysis, really, to the attorney's fee issue overall, and while it did cite to the F.D. Rich case, it undertook no analysis of that case. The court held that the attorney's fees award was proper because other circuits had allowed such awards in similar Miller Act cases, citing the 11th Circuit, 5th Circuit, and 9th Circuit. The court also noted that, payment, that the payment bond claimants are entitled to recover sums justly due. In other words, the purpose of the Miller Act is to protect payment bond claimants and pay them everything they are contractually entitled to recover so that they receive the benefit of their bargain. The disconcerting aspect of, of these cases is that in many instances, the courts do not even discuss the F.D. Rich decision, and many of the decisions just appear to be based on the other rulings of the cases that do not uh, fully analyze the issue either. Also, some courts' rulings on attorney's fees are limited uh, to fees against just the principal under a state law breach of contract claim over which the court had supplemental jurisdiction and not against the surety. 
So you got to be careful when you're when you're looking at these issues and, and really hammer on the FD Rich case and point out the uh, you know the uh, lack of real analysis and and the ignoring the FD Rich case of these other ones. Tom, turn it over to you. All right, thanks, Mike. Um, <clears throat> always good to be uh, back in part of surety today. Um, today, I'm going to discuss the surety's potential liability for attorney's fees under a provision appearing in the bond itself. Then we'll move to attorney's fee provisions that appear in the underlying bonded contract. And we'll also talk about interpleader actions and how the surety can recover its fees for the services it renders when it pays funds into court to be divided among multiple claimants. And then finally, if there's time, we'll talk a little bit about the surety's right to recover attorney's fees as, as a result of an unsuccessful bond claim. First off, a bit of a disclaimer, I'm not going to touch on attorney's fees that can be awarded against a surety pursuant to potential bad faith liability or similar theories. Um, that, that's an entirely different topic uh, and something Justin Thatch and I, in fact, talked about in the September 2021 surety today. So if you're interested in that discussion, you can look it up on the Surety Today website. Turning to the attorney fee provision in a bond, uh, if your bond is on a form developed by a large uh, GC or a government owner, there's a decent chance it has an attorney's fee or hold harmless provision. As Mike said, most jurisdictions are going to follow the American rule and are going to hold the surety to the precise language of the bond because it's a contract like any other. So if the bond says explicitly that the surety will be responsible to pay any attorney's fees incurred by the obligee as a result of the principal's default, you can expect to see that provision to be enforced. Certainly that's not particularly controversial, but what if the bond doesn't expressly mention attorney's fees, but includes broad hold harmless language that arguably might include those fees in the class of recoverable damages? I pulled the following language from a performance bond required by a locality here in Virginia that we had in a recent case. If principal shall perform or cause to be performed the contract and any amendment or extension of or addition thereto, perform all tasks in a good and workmanlike manner and complete the same within the period required and comply with the conditions therein and fully indemnify and save harmless owner from all costs and damages which it may suffer by reason or failure to do so, and fully reimburse and repay owner all expenses which owner may incur in making good any such default, then these obligation, obligations shall be null and void. So are attorney's fees part of the costs and damages that the surety will be responsible to pay? And if attorney's fees are part of a found recovery, how far does it go? Will the surety be responsible to pay the fees incurred by the owner just in negotiating with the surety on a tender and completion agreement or also for litigation? Uh, and if it's a subcontract bond, does it include fees incurred in litigating claims with other subs who seek to recover for delay and other damages supposedly caused by the principal's default? In 1985, the Fourth Circuit looked at similar language in the Tomlinson versus Century Engineering case, which is 777 Fed Second 918. There, an owner brought a performance bond suit against the principal and surety after the principal defaulted on an apartment project. Just like our sample language, the bond there did not expressly mention attorney's fees. The owner won a trial and filed a motion to recover its fees. Uh, the court applied South Carolina law, which is typical and provides that if the bond doesn't include a provision for recovery of attorney's fees, they can't be allowed as an element of damage. 
The court essentially, re essentially recognized the magic words rule and said that if the bond doesn't expressly say attorney's fees, the obligee can't recover them. There's a long, in Tomlinson, there is a long partial concurrence, which is basically a dissent that argues that all costs and damage and all expense essentially constitute a full hold harmless that would cover, that would cover attorney's fees. In the Brass Petro case, 369, Fed 3rd, 34, uh, the AIA A312 performance bond there entitled the obligees to, quote, legal costs resulting from the default and resulting from the surety's failure to act. The court had to determine whether legal costs included attorney's fees, and it found that the protection of the American rule should control unless the intention to waive it was unmistakably clear. It inferred from the bond language that the right to legal costs extended only to administrative costs arising when an obligee has to retain counsel to draft contracts to complete the project. It went on to look at dictionary definitions, which didn't provide a conclusive answer as to whether attorney's fees were included in the definition of legal costs. Therefore, there were two equally valid interpretations, so it wasn't unmistakably clear that the obligees were entitled to recover attorney's fees incurred in litigation against the surety. Other courts have gone in a different direction. Uh, in the North American Specialty versus Chichester School District case um, from the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, the court considered the same A312 performance bond language as in Brass Petro. The owner terminated the principal and the surety elected to take over. The, the owner refused to sign the takeover agreement, but the completion contractor was allowed to complete. The owner refused to release remaining contract funds, the surety sued, and the owner counterclaimed for delay, noncompliant work, and attorney's fees. Each side ended up obtaining a judgment, and the owner moved for its attorney's fees. The court found that the owner was entitled to recover the fees resulting from the, either from the principal's default or the surety's acts or failure, failures to act. This included fees incurred in litigating the counterclaim filed by the owner, but not the surety's complaint. It also included expert fees to the extent the expert assisted the owner's recovery. So Chichester is concerning, but the Brass Petro decision seems to have gained more traction with respect to the A312 bond. The takeaway is that courts generally will enforce the American rule and will not impose liability for attorney's fees based solely on the bond language unless the bond expressly allows an award for them. But that doesn't mean a surety is necessarily off the hook for paying the obligee's fees. Incorporation of the bond and contract's attorney's fee provision is another way that the obligee may seek to recover its fees against the surety. So as we all know, a performance bond guarantees the performance of the bonded contract and incorporates by reference the contract between the principal and the obligee. In the event of a default and termination, the surety is bound to perform the contract. Many construction contracts require the contractor to indemnify the owner for any attorney's fees incurred as a result of default. Generally, under the incorporation by reference doctrine, when a contract incorporates another contract, the contract being incorporated becomes a part of the second contract and the rights and duties are carried over. The incorporation by reference clause is usually pretty general, saying something like the contract between principal and obligee is hereby referred to and may part hereof by reference. So can the surety be hooked by the incorporation clause in the bond because its principal agreed to pay the obligee's fees? The answer to this is very jurisdiction dependent. In another Pennsylvania federal case, Wise Investments versus Bracey Contracting, which is 232 F second 390, the bond required the surety only to perform the underlying contract and did not mention attorney's fees, but the bonded contract required the principal to pay them. 
The obligee argued, as obligees do, that the surety is required to pay everything for which the principal would be liable under the bonded contract, and that included here attorney's fees. The surety said that the bond only required it to pay costs of project completion and that not all damages the obligee can claim against the principal can be charged to the surety. The court followed Pennsylvania law and found that a bond given pursuant to a contract incorporated in a bond will be construed in light of the terms of the contract, but the obligation can't be extended beyond the plain import of the words used. So coverage was limited by the terms of the bond, and the surety was only liable to pay the cost of performance as required by the bond. Now, this is not the law everywhere. In Hicks and Warren versus Liberty Mutual, which is a case from the Southern District of New York, the court interpreted a performance bond and bonded contract with similar language, this time under New York law. The contract granted costs and reasonable attorney's fees to the prevailing party in arbitration. The court quoted similar concepts under New York law to what we saw in Wise Investments, that the American rule controls and the liability of the surety is set forth in the bond, but it took a much more expansive view of the incorporation by reference provision and the surety's duty to perform the construction contract. It held that the incorporation by reference provision made the surety's liability under the bond coextensive with the principal's liability under the contract, including the liability created by the attorney's fee provision. The court also took a different approach to the provision of the bond, to the provision of the bond imposing liability for completion of the construction contract. The surety argued that completion only involved costs relating to the actual construction costs, but the court ruled that the principal's completion of the contract included indemnifying the obligee for attorney's fees and costs arising from the arbitration. Because of these findings, the court denied the surety's summary judgment motion on the attorney's fee issue. So here the takeaway is that you need to be keenly aware of your jurisdiction's law on this particular issue, if there is any. Even states that seem to apply the same general concepts of incorporation by reference with respect to surety bonds can come up with different answers. Moving on to the interpleader issue, uh, where there is more than one claimant against a particular bond, the claims seem to be valid at least to an extent and the claims exceed the amount of the bond, it may be useful to file an interpleader in state or federal court. An interpleader allows the complaining party, or often called the stakeholder, to file an action naming the claimants as defendants and seeking to pay the disputed funds, which in a surety case, this will usually be the amount of the bond, into court. Now, it's a misconception that the stakeholder has to be completely disinterested and that it washes its hands of the dispute when the court grants its motion and accepts the funds. The stakeholder can retain an interest in the funds or dispute one or more of the claims. So let's say you have a payment bond for a million dollars um, and you have competing claims for 500,000, 400,000, and 300,000. And you think there are good defenses to the $500,000 claim, but the 400 dollars and $300,000 claims are likely payable. You can file an interpleader and fight the $500,000 claim in that proceeding. The other claimants have the option of settling out or waiting to see what happens with the larger claim to see if they'll recover fully or get a pro rata share of the bonded funds. Now, personally, I've seen interpleader used more often in commercial bonds, uh, typically motor vehicle dealer bonds. And that, I think that's because the amount of these bonds tends to be low, and it's also not uncommon for a number of claimants to pop up against a particular dealer all at about the same time, either because of fraud or because the dealer simply went out of business. 
There are two different types of federal interpleader rule and statute. The only real differences between these are jurisdictional. Basically, anytime you have claimants from different states, you can file in federal court. If there's no diversity, you likely have the option of filing inter, inter, an interpleader action under state law. The procedure is basically going to be the same under any of these options. Now, turning to the issue at hand, there's a strong body of case law that allows the stakeholder to obtain an award of attorney's fees out of the interpled funds. The justification for that rule is that the plaintiff's stakeholder should not have to pay attorney's fees to guard against the harassment of multiple litigation. Also, the stakeholder's retention of counsel is not out of any fault of its own, but because it's the target of multiple claimants in a dispute not of its own making. Instead, the stakeholder has performed a service to the claimants by starting a proceeding where they can resolve their claims in one forum and it eliminates the need for execution proceedings when the case is over. So in the classic example, you've got com competing claims, you don't want to spend your time and money litigating to see which are valid, and you file your interpleader action and pay the funds into court. You have the ability at that time to file your request for attorney's fees and move to be dismissed from the case. You should then get an award of the fees it took to draft and file the complaint and related activities. That award comes off the top of the interpled funds before it is distributed to the claimants. There's two points to be made here, though. Uh, first, even though we do have a long line of case law allowing the stakeholder its attorney's fees, it's always discretionary with the court. There's no entitlement to attorney's fees under the rule or statute. So even though the case law establishes it is fair and equitable, to allow fees of the stakeholder, it's not a matter of right. The court can adjust the award based on reasonableness, and it can determine which claimant ultimately bears the burden based on whatever factor it chooses, such as the relative merit of the claims, the amount of the claims, and behavior during litigation. A stakeholder can also forfeit its right to collect attorney's fees if it is unnecessarily delayed filing the action or is otherwise guilty of bad faith. Uh, second, the stakeholder is generally only allowed to recover its fees for what I'll call non-controversial fees. Remember how I said earlier that the stakeholder can still fight some or all of the claims? That's true, but don't expect to get all your fees for doing that. The fees that can be paid out of interpled funds are typically limited to those services relating to the actual interpleader. In other words, uh, for joining the dispute in one action. For example, preparing the complaint, getting service of process, preparing the order discharging liability and for dismissal. If a surety in an interpleader action gets involved in an adverse dispute over some of the funds or one of the claims, it can't expect to recover fees for doing that. So detailed time records are going to be key here. It's rare that the fees awarded will be more than a couple thousand dollars. It looks like we're about out of time, so I won't get to the surety's ability to collect fees in certain circumstances, but those will be in the materials that we post online. And I'll, then I will turn it back over to Mike to close us out. All right. Thanks, Tom. Uh, before I open up the line for any questions, I want to let everyone know the next edition of Surety Today will be on Monday, April 11th at 1230, of course. Um, some upcoming events in the surety world. The next uh, Philadelphia Surety Claims Association lunch meeting will be on March 16th. Uh, the Southern Surety Claims Conference will be held on April 27th and 29th in Clearwater, Florida. Hope to see uh, some of you guys there. The uh, ABA uh, FSLC Spring Meeting will be held on May 5th and 6th in Hilton Head, South Carolina. And I'll be speaking at that conference, so I hope to see you there too. Uh, thank you again to everyone for joining us today, and I look forward to speaking with you again next month. Uh, now I'll try to unmute the line here. Yep.
we're having computer difficulties. I'm not going to be able to unmute the line for questions. So we'll just have to end here. Sorry about that. Uh, talk to everybody next month. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surety Today. Audio recordings and white papers from prior episodes are available on the Surety Today page of the Wright, Constable, and Skeen website at wcslaw.com backslash surety-today.